It's good to be with you this morning. And uh, I want us to begin by traveling back in our minds to the year 1881. That was the year in which the hymn writer by the name of Charles Fry wrote a song. And he wrote the song with Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse number 1 in mind. The song is titled, The Lily of the Valley. And what the writer was trying to communicate in that song is the idea of friendship, the idea of intimacy that exists between Jesus and between his disciples. And this is how the song begins. I have found a friend in Jesus. I want you to think with me this morning about the concept of friendship. As we study the topic of friendship in the Bible, particularly in the ancient world, what we come to recognize is that friendship in the ancient world was a reciprocal relationship that was built upon loyalty, trust, affection, and service. A reciprocal relationship built upon loyalty, trust, affection, and service. In 2 Samuel chapter 16, or excuse me, 2 Samuel 16, 16 and 17, during the rebellion of Absalom, one of the friends of David comes to Absalom and acknowledges him as king, and Absalom is puzzled by this and asks him, Why aren't you with your friend? And he uses this word or this terminology. He says, Is this your loyalty to your friend? In other words, if David is your friend, then how could you turn your back against him and come and acknowledge me as king? It says quite a lot about Absalom uh, just uh, in his own mind, as a side note. Proverbs 18, verse 24, For a man to have friends, he must show himself friendly, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 1 to 4, the four verses that describe the friendship of David and Jonathan, Saul's son. The Bible says that they had made a covenant with one another, that they loved one another, and that they viewed one another as their own soul. Philippians 4 and verse number 1, the Apostle Paul, to his sweetheart congregation, he writes to them and he calls them, My beloved, my joy, and my crown. Over and again throughout the Bible, as we read passages that have to do with friendship, we see these themes continue to show up over and over again. Loyalty to one another, trust between one another, affection that exists between two, and service, helping and sacrificing for the one who is your friend. I think that we all recognize these characteristics of friendship in our own lives we all have or have had friendships in the past, and we can think back on those friendships, and we can think about these things, loyalty and dedication and service and affection, these characteristics of a good friend being present in the friendships that we enjoy with our friends here in this world. But as we turn our attention this morning to John chapter 15, what I want to suggest to you is that friendship is not something that can only exist between people. Friendship exists between people and between their God. Jesus outlines the parameters of friendship in John chapter 15, verse 13 to 15. 
He says, greater love has no one than this, that a man uh, lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends. If you do whatever I command you, no longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Notice the three things that Jesus identifies, the three requirements of friendship with Jesus Christ. Number one, friendship with our Lord requires sacrificial love. Friendship with our Lord requires sacrificial love. John 15, verse 13, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. A couple of chapters before this, in John 13, verse 34, Jesus made this statement. He said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. Notice the terminology. Jesus uses the word new. A new commandment I give unto you, he said. Question. What was new about the commandment? Was the newness in the fact that Jesus commands his followers to love one another? Well, the answer to that question, of course, is no. Because in the Old Testament, in the law of Moses, we find passages that commanded God's people to love one another. For example, Leviticus chapter 19 and verse number 18, love your neighbor as yourself. So the newness is not seen in the love for one another or even for one's neighbor. The newness is seen in the model or the standard. Jesus says, if you look close at the passage, John chapter 14, excuse me, verse 13, verse number 34, Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. And here's the model, here's the newness, as I have loved you. You see, the newness is seen in the change of the standard. The standard of love for one's neighbor is no longer self. Love your neighbor as yourself. The standard for love for one's neighbor is Christ. Love your neighbor and love one another as I have loved you. Well, then that begs the question, how has Jesus loved us? If we are to love one another as Jesus has loved us, then we ought to be able to see how exactly, how, uh, how exactly it is that Jesus has loved us. What is the standard? How has he manifested that love? The answer is in our passage, John chapter 15 and verse number 13. Greater love, Jesus says, has no man than this, than that a man lay down his life for his friends. Jesus, of course, is talking about himself. In John 10, verse 15, Jesus said that as he described himself as the good shepherd, he said, the shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and verse number 9, For we know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might be made rich. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, Walk in love uh, as dear children. Uh, as Christ has loved us and has given himself for us as an offering, as a sweet-smelling savor or sacrifice unto God. Over and over again, we read language about redemption. We're redeemed through the blood of Christ, Ephesians chapter 1 and verse number 7. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, John chapter 1, verse number 29. 
Peter would say in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17 and following, You are not redeemed with corruptible things such as silver and gold, received through vain conversation from the tradition of your fathers, but rather you are redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained in these last times for you. Where do we see the manifestation of the love of Christ? We see it in his sacrifice. The greatest illustration of the love of God, John 3 and verse 16, is that he gave his only begotten son to die on the cross for the sins of humanity. The greatest manifestation of the love of Christ is seen in the fact that he humbled himself, Philippians chapter 2, that he became obedient to the will of the Father. In fact, he became, Paul says, obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. A new commandment I give to you, John 13, 34. What's new about it? The pattern, the model, the motivation. The new commandment is that you love one another as I have loved you. Why? Because there is no greater form of love than a love that sacrifices. You see, because of his great love for us, Jesus died for us. And remember how we define friendship. Friendship is a reciprocal relationship built on loyalty, built on trust, built on affection, built on service. Key in on the idea of being reciprocal. If the greatest manifestation of the love of Christ Jesus for us, of our friend, was to sacrifice himself for us, the only appropriate response is reciprocation. In fact, the Apostle Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14 and 15. He said, for the love of Christ constrains us. I like that terminology. I believe it's in his word pictures that A.T. Robertson identified the fact that the terminology is something like walking down a narrow corridor, a narrow hallway, for those of you who don't know what the word corridor means, if you're under the age of, I don't know, 40. We don't use that word anymore. We're walking down a narrow hallway and you have walls that are pressed in on both sides of you. And so you're walking like this and you have no choice. You cannot go to the left. You cannot go to the right. You either have to go forward or you have to go backward. But Paul says, I'm going forward. The idea is that the love of Christ pushes us. The love of Christ motivates us. The love of Christ compels us. Well, to do what, Paul? Look at the rest of the verse. For we thus judge that if one died for all, then all were dead. And that he died for all, that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him which died for them. Ladies and gentlemen, that's reciprocation. Paul says it is the love of Christ, it's that sacrificial love that caused him, that pushed him, that compelled him to die on the cross for our sins, for our salvation. It is the knowledge of that love that compels us to sacrifice ourselves for him as he sacrificed himself for us. To truly be the friend of Christ, we must sacrifice ourselves for him, and that means that his will becomes our priority. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. You know the passage. 
I beseech you, the Apostle Paul said, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable uh, unto God, as is your reasonable service. And don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, proving what is that good and acceptable will of God. That passage is the foundation passage for everything that Paul will say from Romans chapter 12, verse number 3, all the way through the middle of Romans chapter 15. It's the foundation because what he goes on to talk about are these characteristics of Christian living, these actions, if you will, that are to be found in a person who wants to be more like Jesus Christ. And all of the actions of Christianity have to be founded upon sacrifice. Paul will say in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1 to 3, without love, what I do means nothing, what I say means nothing, what I give means nothing. Let all your things be done in love. He'll go on and say, Matthew 6 and verse number 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Why? Because we love the Lord. Because he loves us. And because we want to sacrifice ourselves for him because he sacrificed himself for us. Let me ask you a question. Can the Lord depend upon you? I don't know about you, but in my mind, if I can't depend upon you, you are not a true friend to me. If the Lord cannot depend upon us, how can we say that we are truly his friends? We sing the song sometime, can he depend on you? His blessed will to do. Mark that last, that last part. We'll come to it in just a moment. The Lord has to be able to depend upon us. That's what friendship is all about. That's what sacrifice is all about. That's what loyalty is all about. Being able to be depended upon. The Lord has to be able to trust us. Philippians chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. We have to be loyal to our friend. Proverbs 17 and verse 17. There is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. What does it mean to be a friend of God or what is required? Number one, sacrificial love. Love always puts the best interest of its object at the forefront. Christ Jesus put our best interest at the forefront. He left the splendors of heaven. He walked the streets of this earth. He suffered an agonizing death and he sacrificed himself willingly because of his love for us. The only appropriate response is reciprocation. Number two, look at John 15, verse 14. If I'm going to be a friend of the Lord, it's going to involve, verse 13, sacrificial love, but number two, verse 14, it's going to involve obedience. You are my friends, Jesus said, if, notice the condition, you are my friends if you do whatever I command you. Look close at the passage. Notice, first of all, that friendship is conditional. I mentioned it already. It's conditioned upon my obedience. But number two, it's not just conditioned upon my obedience. It's conditioned upon my complete obedience. Look closer at it. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. John chapter 2, there's a statement that the mother of Jesus makes to the servants. It goes something like this. Whatever he says to you, do it. 
Now, I, I'm a human being just like you, and so this is a struggle for me just like anybody else. But, you know, sometimes the reality is we look at our lives, we look at the things that we want to do, we look at the places we want to go and the people that we want to be, and then we see what the Lord wants us to do and where he wants us to go and what he wants us to be. And sometimes those things don't necessarily, uh, are not necessarily cohesive. And it is sometimes difficult for us because we see the things that are difficult in God's word that he wants us to do and there's something within us sometimes that just wants to be stubborn and obstinate and not completely and wholly give ourselves to his will. But here's the thing. Jesus says, you're my friends if you do not some of the things that I command you. You're my friends if you do all of the things, whatever it is that I command you to do. Friendship with Jesus is dependent upon on our complete obedience. James chapter 2, verse 21 through 23, Abraham is called the friend of God. Why is Abraham called the friend of God? Because Abraham displayed an obedient faith. And as a side note, mark down in your Bibles or in your notes, Romans chapter 4, where the apostle Paul will appeal to Abraham as the example of an obedient faith. And in fact, he'll say in verse number 12 that Abraham has become the father of faith unto all of those who walk in the footsteps of his faith. Meaning that if my faith looks like Abraham's faith, then I can be right with God just like Abraham was right with God. Or for our study this morning, I can be a friend of God just like Abraham was a friend of God. So what do we see in Abraham's faith? We see a faith that accepts what God says. We see a faith that trusts what God says. And we see a faith that, can you finish it? Number three. I can't do it this way. Can you finish it? Obeys what God says. How do I know that Abraham accepted what God said? Go back to Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Abraham, I want you to leave the land, that you, the only place that you've known, and I want you to go to a land that I'm going to show you. And if you'll do this, I'll bless you, I'll bless your seed, and I'll bless all the families of the earth through your seed. How do I know that Abraham accepted that what God said was true? Because he got up and he left. How do I know that Abraham trusted that God would do what God said he would do? Because he got up and he left. How do I know that Abraham obeyed what God said to do? Because he got up and he left. The answer is the same in every case. Abraham is the friend of God, James chapter 2, because Abraham was obedient to God. Now, go back to John. Go This afternoon, sit down and read Jesus' farewell discourse beginning in John 14 and going through the end of John 16, and here's what you're going to note. More than five times, Jesus identifies love and obedience as that which defines a proper relationship between he and his people. More than five times. If you love me, keep my commandments. John chapter 14 and verse number 15. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me, John 14 and verse number 21. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, John 14, verse number 23. But that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandments, so I do, John 14 and verse number 31. John 15, verse 9 and 10. As the Father has loved me, I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Over and over and over again, Jesus says, love and obedience, they go together. We live in a world that seeks to try and distinguish between the two. 
a world that tries to misdefine love and a world that tries to uh, minimize obedience. But if we're going to be the people that God wants us to be, we're going to have to be obedient. One more thing about this and then we'll move on. Some have suggested, and I think there's some merit to it, that when we skip down to John chapter 15, verse number 9 through 17, what we're actually reading is an elaboration of John chapter 15, verse 1 through 8. John 15, verse 1 through 8 is when Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Jesus said, I am the vine and you are the branches. He said, the Father casts off those branches that are unfruitful and throws them into the fire. And those branches that are fruitful, he prunes them. Why? So that they'll grow more fruit. And then he goes on and says, herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. What's the emphasis? The emphasis is on producing fruit, right? What's another way of describing fruit production? Obedience. So then Jesus will then go on and say, not only, am I in the vine, not only am I the vine and you are the branches and you must produce fruit, but Jesus will say perhaps what that really means, how that applies, John 15 verse 9 and following, is that if you're truly going to be my friend, if you're truly going to be my disciple, then you have to obey what I tell you. Number three, look at verse 15. If I'm going to be a friend to Jesus, it involves, number one, it involves sacrificial love. I've got to be willing to give him everything. He's got to be able to depend upon me. He's got to be able to trust me. He's got to be able to know that I'm going to be loyal and true to him. Number two, it, it involves obedience. I've got to obey his will, everything that he says, complete obedience. But then number three, it also involves knowledge. Look at verse 15. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends for all things that I heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You see, the beautiful thing about this passage is that our sacrifice and our obedience is not without knowledge. You notice the contrast between servants and between friends. You see, a master has the ability to command his servants to carry out a task and is under no obligation to ever explain to his servants why they're doing it. He doesn't have to give them any information if he chooses not to. Jesus, though, is our master and our friend, and Jesus says, I'm no longer calling you servants, I'm calling you friends, and the reason why is because not only am I asking you to sacrifice for me, and I'm, and I'm asking you to obey me, but I'm, telling, I'm going to tell you why. There is knowledge that is involved in friendship. Remember that friendship is a reciprocal relationship that is built upon trust, that is built upon loyalty, that is built upon service, but there's another item, and that item is affection. See, our best friends are those that we love. Our best friends are those like Jonathan and David who our souls are, are knit together. We care for them. We have an affectionate longing and attachment to them. And Jesus is describing the same kind of relationship that can exist between us and, us and him, but it is based upon our knowledge. Well, knowledge of what? Notice the end of the verse. Jesus says, all things that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. What's that talking about? Let me suggest to you that what that's talking about is the plan of God. 
Paul will describe it as God's eternal purpose in Ephesians 3 and verse number 11. And in Romans chapter 15, verse 25 and 26, and again in Ephesians 1, 9 and Ephesians 3, 5, he will tell us that the details of that plan have been hidden in the mind of God, but now they have been revealed. And tying that all together, Hebrews 10 and verse number 9 tells us that the reason Jesus came into this world was to fulfill the will of the Father. So in John 15 and verse 15, then Jesus is saying, I'm no longer calling you servants, I'm calling you friends. And the reason why is because I have told you, I have told you who I am. I have told you why I've come. I have told you what I'm here to accomplish. And it is through the knowledge of who I am and why I've come and what I'm going to accomplish. It is through that knowledge that we are going to be drawn closer together. It is through that knowledge that our friendship and that our affection will blossom. Listen to John chapter 17, verse 6 through 8 for a moment. John 17, verse 6 through 8. Listen to what Jesus said. This is in his prayer to the Father, and he's speaking about the twelve. And listen to what he says. He says, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now, they have known that all things which you have given me are from you, for I have given to them the words which you have given me. And they have received them, and they have known surely that I came forth from you and they have believed that you sent me. Our Lord, our friend, does not ask us to sacrifice for him, to serve him, and to obey him in some sort of blind, uh, uneducated, or uninformed faith. That's not the relationship. Our Lord has told us everything that we need to know about who he is and about who God is and about what God sent him to do and about his willingness to come and do it. He's told us everything that we know to be right with him in this life and to go on and be with him in the next life. It is that knowledge that makes friendship possible. One more passage. Colossians chapter 1, verse 9 through 11. This makes it a little more practical, I think. This is a prayer of the Apostle Paul. It is a prayer according to, his own, uh, according to what he writes that he prays on a regular basis. And listen to what he says. He says, For this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that you be filled with his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Stop right there just for a moment and notice the emphasis on knowledge. Our prayer, our constant prayer, is that you be filled with the knowledge of his will. He's talking about knowing God's word, knowing God's will. It's the same kind of knowledge that Jesus is talking about in John chapter 15. Now Paul says our prayer is that you grow, constantly grow over and again in this knowledge in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. The idea is not that you just have the knowledge, but that you understand how to apply it correctly. But look at verse 10 and 11. You see, because here's the application. Here's the reason. Notice the things that he mentions. That you might walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing unto him, being fruitful in every good work. That takes us back to John 15, verse 1 and following, doesn't it? I'm the vine and you are the branches. Jesus said, or Paul says, I want you to know more of God's word so that you can please God and so that you can bear fruit for God. But then he says at the end of verse number 10, an increasing knowledge of God 
The difference between increasing in the knowledge of God at the end of verse 10 and increasing in knowledge of the will of God in verse number 9 is this. Increasing in knowledge of the will of God is telling us, it identifies rather knowing more of the word of God. Increasing in the knowledge of God is about a relationship. It's intimacy. It's the same sort of, it's the same sort of intimacy, uh, at least to a degree, that exists between a husband and a wife. The more you know your spouse, the more, the, the, the more you get to know your spouse, the closer you grow or become with that spouse, your husband or your wife, the more you grow to love them. The more we know, the more we love, the closer our bond, the tighter our bond becomes. That's the way that it works between people. The more we know a person, the closer we're able to grow to them, the more our love grows for them. Same principle works with our Lord. Paul says, I want you to know more of God's will because the more you know about God's will, the more you know about God, the more you know about God, the, cro the closer you'll uh, grow to him and the greater your love will grow. So, <coughs> John 15 and verse 15, our friendship with the Lord is, is dependent upon our knowledge. How, how much, how well do you know your friend? How well do you know the Lord? How well do you know His will? There's a reason why we spend so much time emphasizing the importance of studying the Bible, of studying God's Word. And this is one of them. Because without knowledge, there is no friendship. Friendship is a reciprocal relationship that involves trust, that involves sacrifice, that involves affection, that involves obedience. Jesus said in John 15, verse 13 to 15, that he has called us friends. And his desire is that he might be able to call every human being his friend. But that friendship is not cheap. And it's not easy and it's not an on-again, off-again, and it's not a casual friendship. This is an all-or-nothing proposition. Jesus gave his all for us. We must give our all for him. And that begins by obeying the gospel, by being washed in his blood, by being added to his church, and therefore becoming his friend. Do you believe this morning that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Are you willing to repent of your sins and confess your faith in Him? Are you ready to be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins so that you might be added to the church? We stand ready and willing to help you to do it. This morning, are you a Christian? Have you obeyed the gospel? But as you think about John 15, verse 13 and following, and this concept of friendship and this reciprocal relationship, if you will, that's to exist between us and our Lord, the thought hits you right in the face that, you know, this hasn't been very reciprocal. It's been pretty one way. It's all the Lord and basically nothing me. Change it. Make it right. Let us help you. Come forward as we stand and sing together.